This is the Abstract Journal Podcast. My name is Kevin Clark. I've been writing fiction for over 30 years. I realize that you've never heard of me, but perhaps I'm the greatest fiction writer that you've never heard of. This is the first in a series of episodes based on a story I wrote over 20 years ago. It's set in the fictional town of Pimpton, Ohio, in West Central Ohio, beginning in the 1930s. It's about baseball. It's about love, racism, alcoholism, religion, and baseball. This is Buy Me Some Pickles and Cracker Jacks, Episode 1. From the first day of tryouts, it was evident that things would change. March was coming in like a lion that spring in 38. The stiff wind wasn't quite ready to relinquish its icy chill. In spite of the two heavy sweatshirts he was wearing, Hannes could feel the goosebumps rising all over his body as he finished his calisthenics. Glancing about at his teammates, he noticed several of them had opted to wear toboggans rather than the customary ball caps. A tall, rather husky man raised his arms and waved them all over to the bleachers. I'm sure everybody already knows, but I'm your new coach, he began rather matter-of-factly. You will call me either Coach Edwards or simply Coach. I can tell you boys think you're the cat's meow, seeing how you won the state and all last year. Well, that don't mean squat to me. You'll do as I say, you'll play where I tell you, and I'll win another state title. He finished his introductions to them and then sent them out to take some fielding practice. Even though this was supposed to be team tryouts, with only 15 boys from the small town in attendance, it was obvious everyone would make the squad. Hannes hustled out to his position. Surprisingly, he was joined at his spot by a new face. It just happened to be Junior, the coach's son. And Hines wasn't the only one to have his territory invaded. Hannes' best friend, Jeff Spencer, was united at second base with Horatio Edwards, the coach's other son. Since their sophomore year, Hannes and Jeff had started at their respective positions. They had played them very well. So well, in fact, that during their junior year, along with senior first baseman Pete Thurston, they reestablished the league record for double plays, with 34 twin killings. The record had propelled Pete to receive a baseball scholarship from Sherman College. Hannes and Jeff were each basically guaranteed a similar offer after they graduated, and more than likely they could expect to get contracts to play professionally. After a mere half dozen grounders apiece, Coach Edwards sent the boys to the outfield. Opening day of their senior year found Jeff playing first base and Hannes out in right field. Many of the Pimpton alumni were more than a little put out at this and the Pimpton rumor mill generated story after story about how Coach Edwards and Mr. Hines were involved in a fisticuffs. That was all a misunderstanding. It was true, however, that they did have words, and very loud words at that. This is how the whole fable came into existence. Mr. Hines was already perturbed that his boss at the pickle plant hadn't allowed him to leave work as early as he wished. Arriving at the game just as the first inning was ending did little to soothe his frustrations. 
Then, as the Pimpton High squad took their positions in Independence Field for the top of the second, he became irate that his son wasn't occupying the position he had been consigned from birth to play. Mr. Hines, having been raised in eastern Ohio, the son of German immigrants, naturally found Hannes Wagner of the Pittsburgh Pirates to be his childhood hero. He never outgrew his childhood idol and elected to name his own son for him. From the time the boy was old enough to hold a bat and wear a glove, his father had begun grooming him to play shortstop. Hannes adapted to the position like a duckling to a pond, and his father couldn't have been prouder. The boy had been mysteriously quiet about how things were progressing with the baseball team that spring. Mr. Hines found that to be rather odd, since the only thing his son cared about other than baseball was his girlfriend Estelle, and it was hard to determine which he esteemed the highest. Hannes would generally talk incessantly about baseball. The unaccustomed silence now made perfect sense. So as soon as that game was over, Mr. Hines waltzed right into the field house, stepped past the boys changing at their lockers, and stormed into Edward's office. The coach was sitting behind his desk, examining the stitches of a baseball when Hines barged in the door. Immediately, the infuriated father began yelling at him with such resounding voice that even those people who were waiting outside the brick-filled house could make out word for word what was being said. The startled Edwards dropped the baseball. It bounced twice and rolled off his desk. He reached down beside his desk as if to retrieve the ball, but instead lifted a bat from out of an equipment bag. Holding the bat in his hand, he commenced waving it menacingly as he yelled back. Hines, not a man who could be easily bullied, called Edwards bluff. He drew back and raised his fist. Then he delivered a big overhand right, which landed squarely on top of the coach's desk. It caused the pine desktop to splinter into a hundred pieces. Edwards, though, was certain that the punch was coming for him, and he jerked his hands up as if to defend himself, forgetting he was holding the bat in the process. It cracked him solidly about his left eye, causing him to groan out loudly and yell, Look what you did! To which Hines replied, You deserve worse. And then he turned and stormed right back out, slamming the door behind him. The reverberation caused signs and pictures to fall off the wall. The players were all standing silently around their lockers in astonishment. And just outside the field house, their parents, girlfriends, classmates, and anyone else who might have been attending the game were now lingering in order to get a closer ear to what was going on inside. Mr. Hines didn't say a word to anyone, but walked quietly past the masses, rubbing his fist, which was now beginning to throb from the collision with the desk. He never spoke of it to anyone, until a few years before he died, when he confided to me about it. I feel a little guilty breaking his trust and wouldn't do it now, but I feel the truth must be told. Like most altercations, verbal or physical, this one didn't change things. Ignatius Jr. and Horatio Edwards were firmly entrenched at shortstop and second base respectfully. Despite Mr. Hines' insistence that Hannes just quit the team, the young man refused. Eventually, Mr. Hines relented and confessed that his son had done the right thing. Hannes was determined to make the best of a bad situation, and he was quite successful. Just as in his junior season, he continued to lead the Ohio Valley Conference in batting. He did this despite the fact that his average had plummeted 100 percentage points from the 652 
that previous year. At a glance, I'm sure 652 seems rather astronomical, but when you take into consideration the talent that Hannes possessed, it was like watching a man playing with boys. His skills as a high school junior were already on par of an upper minor league player. But the 100 percentage point drop wasn't because he had diminished in talent. On the contrary, those who watched him that year believed he was actually a better hitter. The two inches and 20 pounds he added to his frame during the previous fall and winter, making him an even six foot, 185 pounds, greatly increased his power at the plate. The one and only reason for the decline was Edwards. Without fail, any time Hannes came to the plate with less than two outs and a runner on base, the coach would signal for a sacrifice bunt. Other coaches in the conference soon picked up on this and began cheating their corner infielders up the baseline. Midway through the season, Hannes's average had crashed to below 400. It was then that his father devised a little strategy to offset Edwards. It was so simple he wondered why he hadn't thought of it sooner. Whenever his son came to bat in a quote, bunning situation, he told him to foul off two pitches, thusly forcing Edwards to call off the bunt. His lower batting average, however, wasn't the worst thing he had to endure that season. By far the greatest hardship came from watching Ignatius Jr. attempt to fill his shoes at shortstop. Jr. was the most error-prone infielder anyone in Pimpton could ever remember seeing play the grand old game. He managed to boot an unheard of seven in one game, and those were just the errors he made with his glove. All of his throwing errors the coach managed to have charged to Spencer as fielding errors at first base. At his very best, Junior still mopped at least two balls per game, and only in a pair of games did he play at such an elevated level. Despite Hannes's lower average, Junior's porous glove, and Edwards' inability to coach, the Pimpton High squad still had enough talent to win the conference handily, and advance once more into the state tournament. It was just prior to the start of the tournament that Edwards came down with a terrible case of influenza, which nearly claimed his life. At least that was the official story. Tracy Wilson, Pimpton High's history teacher, had been assistant coach for the previous four seasons. From the onset of the 38th season, though, he had refused to resume his position because he felt he had been slighted at not being offered the head spot. Superintendent Grubaker was able to strong-arm him into taking over as temporary manager. Immediately, Wilson reinstated Hannes at shortstop, Jeff at second base, and he also inserted Paul Thurston, a sophomore, and the younger brother of Pete at first. Horatio was completely removed from the lineup, and Junior was switched to right field. Junior only managed to retain the starting spot because even though his fielding left much to be desired, at the plate, he was second only to Hannes. With Wilson at the helm, Pimpton whizzed through the tournament and right into the championship game. As fate would have it, Edwards was now fully recovered and ready to return to coaching. It irked Ignatius Edwards to no end that his sons had been removed from their positions. Deep in his cold black heart, he blamed Hannes, but he needed his bat in the lineup so he got back at him the only way he knew how. By leaving Paul Thurston in at first base and benching his best friend Jeff. 
Hannes was furious and facing the biggest dilemma of his young life. He did what he thought was best. He quit. However, he didn't do it quietly. Not in the least. He waited until the game had started. It was a picture-perfect day in Columbus. Although it was only the end of May, the mercury was already pushing into the low 80s. The stadium on the campus of Ohio State University looked mostly barren, other than the scattering of folks from Pimpton. Even fewer fans huddled behind their opponent, Oak Harbor High, from up around Lake Erie. Oak Harbor had the honor of being home team. Since Pimpton had first at bats, Hannes always batted third in the order. He led on as though nothing was awry. He took fielding practice with his teammates, and he took batting practice just as he always did. The subtle difference in his attire didn't draw any attention. He always wore a t-shirt under his scratchy wool jersey, even in such heat. This story almost seems too far-fetched to believe, so I actually went through the trouble of researching it. And from what I was able to unearth, there was nothing to lead me to believe that what I had been told was false. Leading the game off, Edward's son, Jr., hit a line drive over the third baseman's head into left center for a single. Up next was catcher Herm Rogers. He tried to look sinister as he glared back at the Oak Harbor pitcher, but with his circular baby face, it was lost in translation. The opposing moundsman sent a hard one in, tight on Herm, but he drove it in the gap in right center for a double, in the process moving Junior over to third. That brought Hannes to the plate for his final at bat. His original plan was to approach the plate and then turn around and walk off the field, but he said he couldn't resist coming up to the plate with runners on second and third. Keeping with his ridiculous script, Edwards signaled for Hannes to lay down a bunt. Throughout that whole dreadful season, Hannes had fought the overwhelming temptation to blatantly ignore the coach's call until this instant. Oak Harbor's pitcher delivered up a delicious fastball smacked down the heart of the plate, which Hannes uncorked on, driving it over the fence in straightaway center field. Here's where things really get interesting. Hannes, completely elated, trotted down to first base, where he removed his cap and tossed it in the air. Once he reached second, he began unbuttoning his jersey, which he flung off as he rounded third. He continued toward the plate, but just a step away he stopped. First he kicked off his cleats, and then he pulled off his stirrups, wadded them into a ball, and hurled them into the backstop. Lastly, he unsnapped his pants, slid them off, revealing a pair of white boxer shorts. Gently, he folded the pants and began walking toward Coach Edwards, who was by this time emerging from the dugout yelling frantically at him, mostly about ignoring his signal and also for not touching home plate. Handing the pants to Edwards, Hannes simply announced, I quit, and then turned to exit the field. Coach Ignatius Edwards completely lost his composure. In a rage, he flew in the dugout and picked up the first thing he came to. It just so happened that it was an equipment bag, which held about 15 baseball bats. Charging back onto the field, screaming at him, you can't quit my team, you can't quit my team, he heaved the bag at Hannes. The full brunt of the bag's weight 
caught the young man in the back of his right leg. Instantly, he was cast to the turf, groaning in agony. Jeff was the first to his side, and once he removed the bag, the damage could be surveyed. Young Hannes Hines' fibula was projecting out of the front of his leg. His ball career was over. Because of the actions of Edwards, the Pimpton squad was forced to forfeit the game. Oak Harbor was awarded the state championship trophy. Hannes' father had to be physically restrained, and Edwards was escorted off the field by police. Subsequently, Edwards was fired from his coaching position with Pimpton High School. Ten years later, Hannes still walked with a slight limp, hardly noticeable, yet just enough to keep him from playing ball. July 17th of 48, as it turned out, was exactly ten years to the day that he had first came to work for the Pimpton Pickles baseball team. He swore he would never forget that day, since it was only one day after his cast had been removed. Good old Dr. Clamstead had removed it. His hand had slipped while cutting the cast, and he sliced into Hannes's leg. He required a number of stitches to close the wound. Nonetheless, it was this day, in 1948, when Hannes Hines claimed his life begun. The Pickles were off to their worst start in team history which dated back more than 60 years to 1887. That's the year the Northwest League was formed. It was named to honor the centennial anniversary of the Ordinance of 1787, which established the Northwest Territory. That territory is now Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Wisconsin, and lastly, Michigan. Lastly, because I'm from Ohio. Teams from each of these states comprised the original members of the league. Edwards happened to be in his fifth season of coaching the team, and many of the town folk wondered why he was ever hired. Rumors still persist to this day that Edwards had something over on Josiah Randolph Pym V, owner of the Pimpton Pickles, as well as the Pym Pickle Producer Corporation. The original Josiah Randolph Pym, spelled P-I-M-M, who founded the business, as legend would have it, was said to have traded pickles to the Shawnee and Miami tribes that had inhabited the area in the latter part of the 18th century. From out of that, the business was born. Pym set up a trading post in West Central Ohio, which grew into Pimpton, spelled P-I-M-T-O-N, although it was supposed to be Pym Town. However, Pym himself was illiterate and his assistant, unbeknownst to him, wasn't much more literate than he was. So when Josiah had his assistant send a letter to the governor's office with a petition to have the town named after himself, he didn't bother proofing the letter. Not until his wife had arrived from Pennsylvania to join him did he discover that the town was named Pimpton. Josiah passed his business, as well as his name, to his son, who in turn passed both on to his son, and so on and so forth, all the way to the fifth generation. Of course, it was Josiah Randolph Pym III who founded the Pimpton Pickle baseball team as a charter member of the Northwest League. During the inaugural season and the next 23 to follow, all the players were employees of the Pym Pickle Producer Corporation. Pimpton was the last team in the league to hire players just for the sake of playing baseball. Pym III insisted it was unethical 
and that that was not the way it was intended when he helped form the league. From the onset, both Michigan teams brought in professional ballplayers. The Adrian Antelope hired a pair of mediocre minor league pitchers, while the Upper Peninsula Pike placed two minor league outfielders and a former major league third sacker from the Boston Bean Eaters on their roster. The other clubs protested, especially the Catawba, Ohio Catfish. However, both teams claimed the men who worked for their businesses which was impossible to disprove. Regardless of their vehement protests, Catawba began hiring former professional players the ensuing season. Despite the unsavory use of more experienced players by the Michigan teams, it was the Pickles who took home the first week up by winning the regular season as well as the best of five championship series between the top two teams. Their opponents in that first series were the South Bend Indiana Steamers. Little was known about that first series except that Pimpton won. A fire swept through the offices of the Pim Pickle Producer Corporation in 1903 and all was lost except for the trophies. They had won four by then, two of which were against the South Bend team. Unfortunately, it had dissolved after the 1896 season. No one has the slightest idea what happened to South Bend's records, and in those days, the league didn't keep their own records. As I mentioned earlier, the Pickles were off to their worst start in club history in 48, with a 7 and 38 record. Edwards was then, and probably to this day, still remains the most hated man ever in Pimpton. The sports editor of the local newspaper, the Pimpton Press, called daily for his dismissal in his articles. Fueling the Fueling the flames of suspicion about Edwards having something over on Pym, he refused to fire him, even in the face of the fact that he had never even led a team into a championship series or even posted a winning record for that matter. Pym V defended him. So it goes without saying, no one was disappointed when the news spread throughout the town the morning of July 17, 1948, that Ignatius Edwards had been struck by an automobile while returning to his hotel in Catawba. As the Pimpton Press reported on page 2, Edwards had left a bar, which was the only thing he did more often than lose ball games, and was crossing the street to the hotel when a vehicle sped away from the curb and slammed into him. The driver fled the scene. Eyewitnesses all concurred that the vehicle was a brand new 48 Plymouth. Everyone in Pimpton knew it could only be Casey O'Shea. Everyone that is, including Edwards himself, who survived the accident, but was left with both legs fractured, a separated shoulder, and a concussion. Reasons for O'Shea's intense hatred of Edwards were numerous, but other than the fact that he was an overzealous pickle fan, who along with nearly everyone else in town thought Edwards was a lousy coach, it was pretty common knowledge that Ignatius was having an affair with Mrs. O'Shea who was a barmaid at the local drinking establishment. He attempted to bring charges against O'Shea, but Casey had an alibi. A cousin in Kentucky who said O'Shea was staying with his family at the time of the accident. Consequently, the case was thrown out and no one else was ever charged. As for Edwards, though, his coaching days were over, at least for the time being. Hannes hadn't read any of the paper that morning besides skimming the front page, 
so he was in the dark as to why Mr. Pym requested he be sent to his office straight away upon his arrival. The baseball offices were located on the second floor of the Pym Pickle Producers Corporation office building. The main offices of the business were on the first floor, and Pym's office was on the third floor. Honest made his way up the steps, where he was greeted by Pym's voluptuous secretary, Miss Orchard, who immediately ushered him into the owner's office. The spacious office was flanked with bookshelves down the walls to either side. The shelves filled both walls from ceiling to floor, with the only thing breaking the monotony of the books being the occasional brass bookend accompanied by porcelain sculptures or vases filled with silk flowers. The wall which gave passage to the door by which Hannes had entered into the office possessed the gallery of portraits of the various Josiah Randolph Pims, one through five. The current Pym was sitting in the center of the room behind his mahogany desk, reading through some reports when Hannes walked in the door. The only thing that illuminated the entire room was a small reading lamp on his desk. A beautiful chandelier hung above the center of the great room, but it wasn't employed in the sharing of its brilliance. To the rear of Pym's desk was a grand picture window. Had the shade not been drawn, it would have revealed a busy road below and then crossing over to Pym Park with a splendid view from straightaway center field. Courteously, he motioned for Hannes to take a seat while he finished looking over his reports. Then he proceeded to ask Hannes' input on the situation. Embarrassingly, Hannes inquired, What situation would that be, sir? You mean to tell me you haven't heard? asked Pym. Heard what, Mr. Pym? Here, read this, Pym said, sliding the newspaper in front of Hannes. Hannes quickly read the article, then folded the paper and handed it back to Pym. Oh, I don't know, muttered Hannes, struggling to find his thoughts. It looks like we're going to need a new manager. Uh, um, what about Albert Mosier? He used to be a minor league player. Pym just shook his head and stared back at him, awaiting his next suggestion. How about Marv McKeever? Colton fired him before the season, and I don't think he's working yet, searched Tynes. Well, there was a reason for that. He was fraternizing with gamblers, Pym returned. Have you considered either the assistants, Luke Dresden or Patrick Berwick? queried Hannes. Once more, Pym shook his head negatively. At a loss for more suggestions, Hannes was attempting to hide his frustration when he asked, Was there anyone that you did have in mind, sir? At this, Josiah Randolph Pym V arose from his desk, strolled toward his right to a closet along the rear wall next to his gigantic window. After removing a box from the closet, he returned to the desk and handed it to Hannes. With an inquisitive look on his face, Hannes removed the lid from the box, revealing a forest green Pimpton Pickles cap and jersey. Congratulations, Mr. Hines. You're the new head coach of the Pimpton Pickles. All you need to do is sign your name by the X, Pim added as he slithered the contract across his desk.